24-year veteran of the FBI, Christopher Voss knows a thing or two about high-stakes negotiation. In 2003, he was chosen to be the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, an elite role he held for four years. Voss has since applied his singular experience to the world of business. In his best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, Voss reveals the field-tested techniques FBI agents use to talk criminals and hostage-takers around the world into or out of just about any scenario you can imagine, and shows how we can all use these strategies to become powerful negotiators both in business and in life. Everybody's got something they sacrificed their entire life for if they were in pursuit of it. I need to listen to you long enough because you'll make references to that. It'll get you talking by understanding the positives and the negatives, and I'll reflect and validate very intentionally different aspects of that when I hear it or what's implied by it. As soon as I pick up and feedback to you what you're implying, then you want to talk to me even more. Then that bond gets, if you want to talk to me, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Voss is also the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, a consulting firm which instructs businesses and individuals in the implementation of these techniques. At an Ivy Ideas Night in Los Angeles, Christopher recounted stories from his days at the FBI and broke down the tactics you can use to become a better negotiator. Please enjoy our conversation with Christopher Voss. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. up and have a seat, Thank Mr. Voss. We're dying to know what's inside this brain of yours. I have I'm to be actually, honest with you. After that introduction, I'm kind of curious as to what I'm going to say myself. <laughs> Do you see right there? Acknowledging and validating. First key characteristic of a great negotiator. This is very impressive. So, so it's going to be a real tennis game here, isn't it? <laughs> so, so what were you? Were you, the, were you the little kid with your parents and your sisters that just never wanted to lose a battle, or how did this begin for you? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, just grew up in sort of a common sense, figured out, get things done kind of environment. A small town in Iowa. I know I have a very Iowa accent. Not exactly. It's from those years in New York City. But, um, you know, just figure it out. Uh, have fun, figure it out. Work hard. Really complicated ideas. When did you begin to realize that negotiating was a gift of yours? Well, I, I think I, f I first actually started to admire it, and I didn't know I was going to get into it, but I was, a, I was a police officer in Kansas City, Missouri before I joined the FBI, and I was probably kind of like a lot of new young cops, uh, adrenaline junkie, chase the bad guys, you know, take command, take control, and um, a bunch of, there was a personnel there was a lawsuit against the police department by the detectives, and they rotated a whole bunch of detectives back out into the street. 
And I ended up working with a couple of guys that were just like quiet, soft-spoken guys that could just like make magic happen in front of your eyes. When I thought we might be getting into a fight or they'd calm it down really quickly and then we'd move on. We'd be out of there faster than we ever were before. Or, you know, they'd trick somebody into admitting who they were when they were trying to conceal their identity. And, and I was just so blown away at their ability to use soft power to get stuff done so much faster that when I stumbled over it a few years later that I thought, this is cool, I gotta do this. So you've been trained by the FBI, Scotland Yard, did training at Harvard. What is this like? I mean, I feel like this must be a boot camp for your mind to be able to put through this sort of rigorous testing. It's kind of like hanging out at Ivy Connect in a lot of ways. <laughs> nice you know, you job. get together, you hang out, you drink a little, and you go home. <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounds a bit more challenging than that. Well, uh, actually, in, in, in a way, like um, Scotland Yard guys, I, I didn't know they were doing this to us. Um, that was the second uh, intense training I went through after the Bureau. Now, what the, the Scotland Yard guys did was they wanted to thoroughly exhaust you, put as much pressure as they could on you as possible. So we thought we were partying. They just made sure we drank every night till 1 a.m. and got no sleep. And were then they maxed, stressed us out, exhausted us, like within two days. We were there for two weeks. So, um, you know, that was a challenge. That was pretty cool. And then we'd, we'd, we'd finish the day, and then they would start the debrief of the day at 10 o'clock at night. We'd work till about 6. We'd have time to have dinner. The debrief would start officially at 10. They'd start us drinking at 8. And then they, and then they would, the debriefing would start, and they would rip us to shreds. I mean, the most vicious criticism that I ever heard, because they wanted to see how we would react under stress. Um, and that was crazy. That was, I, I learned a lot from those guys. Learned a hard way to learn, hard way to learn. But you know, that was one of the trainings I went through. What did you learn about yourself in that process? Um, that, like, if you could just step back a little. Uh, you, most of the time, you only need to step back just a little. That it was probably going to be okay. You know, you, you don't have to get into a conflict right away if you could, if you could hesitate just a little and let it play out a little bit. I mean, the process is ridiculously powerful if you're confident in a good process and you get confident in a good process by trial and error. There's, you know, there's, there's no way other than making mistakes. And I, I learned a lot of that there. Let, let's start us off with basic negotiating 101. What are some of the three components of being a good negotiator? Well, uh, listen between the lines. And I, I know that sounds kind of trite, but the other side's got to talk first. You know, in, in every negotiation, I want the other side to go first. You know, and especially like in business negotiation, there's, this, there's an ongoing debate over who names price first. It's one of the things I love to argue with my academic colleagues with because they say the data says name price first. And none of the A players in the business world will name price first. They want you to go first. So, you know, I'd learned in hostage negotiation, let the other guy, other guy mostly guys, um, talk first. And then they're going to say something that I like. There's going to be something in there that's going to work for me. I just got to listen to it. Uh, another friend of mine here in town, uh, a bunch of you, if you're Dodgers fans, you know who Ned Coletti is. Ned Coletti is a former GM of the Dodgers. Um, uh, um, the former owner of the Dodgers, Frank McCourt, hired Coletti from the 
the Giants and in Coletti's first year here, he took them from worst to first in one season. So he was a great GM. And he spoke at my class at USC. And he said, what do I talk about? I said, what, say whatever's on your mind. Because it's going to be good. And he said, all right, so in every negotiation, in every, every two hours of conversation, there's 90 seconds of solid gold. 90 seconds of solid gold. Inside of two hours. So you have to shut up and wait for it and listen for it, and then the other side's going to give you that solid gold. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what we did in hostage negotiation. So that's one of the things you got to do. You got to let the other side speak so that they can own the process. And then a, a phrase I do like, negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. <laughs> well, you let them have your way by getting them talking, and then when they say something that works, then you go, brilliant! And then they love it, and you make a deal. Talk to me a little bit about your years in the FBI. I mean, negotiating kidnapping cases, Life and death is on the line here. You're not negotiating with people who are necessarily right of mind in very stressful situations. What was one of the most challenging moments that you had? Well, um, the hard part is trying to, first of all, see every, every, kid, every hostage taking, every kidnapping, first of all, recognizing where it's going to go before it gets there. And then, depending upon where it's going to go, if you know it's going to be good, then you want to shorten the time frame so that it doesn't go bad on you out of the blue. We had a, uh, back at the beginning of the second Iraq war, most people don't know this, a guy drove a tractor into the middle of Washington, D.C. on St. Patrick's Day, um, which really screwed up my drinking plans for that day. <laughs> but uh, he shut down the center of Washington, D.C. So if you can imagine Washington, D.C. coming to a screeching halt two days from going to war. In an, in an era where there have been terrorist bombings and there have been shooters, and so here's a guy that has driven a tractor in the middle of Washington, D.C., and claims to have four bombs with him. You're going to take that seriously. So we sensed early on that we were probably going to talk this guy out, fits of anger, and they had a green light on him the whole time, which meant if he did a certain thing wrong, even though we thought we were going to get him out, if he went to the wrong side of where he was, they were going to blow his brains out. So our challenge then was to get him out sooner. We thought we could get him out, but we needed to get him out before he got himself killed. So that was challenging, figuring out how to get the guy out sooner and have it be a win for him. And it was, and he came out. How did you do that? We, uh, all right, so don't negotiate alone. If you're smart, you need another set of ears with you all the time. Nobody in my company, if we got a negotiation, is on the line. My, my director of operations is my son, and typically he and I negotiate together. And it's not he talks, and then I talk, and then he talks, and then I talk. It's that he, one of us is listening between the lines. So we get this guy named Dwight Watson in D.C., and um, he has stated to us, that he was with the 82nd Airborne, and if the 82nd Airborne parachuted behind enemy lines, they had to hold their position for 72 hours, and then if they got, didn't get reinforcement in 72 hours, then they could withdraw and not lose honor. So he'd been in at about 36 hours at that point in time. And we didn't want to wait the full 72 because he's still going to get himself killed. So we're listening to him, we're listening to between the lines, and we realize that he continues to make biblical references. 
So we, and it's, uh, I talk about it in my book, you know, figure out what the other side's religion is. Everybody has a religion, something that's bigger than they are that they, will, they, they believe in, that they'll, that they'll die for, that they'll dedicate their life to. You know, um, uh, Daniel Pink calls it purpose. People talk about it when, when you're in flow. Everybody knows about flow. You're in flow when you're dedicated to this, your religion, whatever it is. So we're listening to this guy, and I realized that the negotiators, uh, U.S. Park Police, we've got an integrated team, FBI and Park, and the Park guys are on the phone, and they think he's coming out the following morning, and I'm hearing that he's not. And so they get off the phone, and um, I say, well, you know, when's he coming out? And they said, tomorrow. And I said, uh, I don't think he's coming out tomorrow. And they said, well, we'll call him back. And I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you do that, in the event he's not coming out tomorrow, we got to figure out something to say to get him to change his timeline. And we, gotta t- we probably got about seven people in this tiny little room. So we start kicking stuff around back and forth, and one of the women uh, who's with the FBI, a very good friend of mine, in the, and she's sitting in the back, and she's listening the whole time, and, and she says... Tell him tomorrow, because he keeps talking about three days. She says, tell him tomorrow's the dawn of the third day. Now, if you're Christian or you understand the Christian reference, Friday to Sunday is actually just two days. Good Friday to Easter. It's not three days, that's two days. That's 48 hours. Dawn of the third day. That gets us out a day early. So I called Dwight back up on the phone. I say, Dwight, when are you coming out? And no, they said, Dwight, you're coming out tomorrow, right? And he goes, no, I'm not coming out tomorrow. Thursday. And she says, but Dwight, Dwight, tomorrow is the dawn of the third day. And he goes, dead silent. So I'll come out tomorrow. Came out the following morning on schedule, without incident, no bombs. Opened D.C. back up. Went to war 24 hours later. So... <laughs> Why does that work? Is it that she understood his psychology? She could push that particular button? Why did that work with him? Yeah, there's, there's different aspects um, when we get into this tactical empathy balance. There's different components. We're driven primarily by stuff we're trying to avoid, mostly. And we're so driven by it that it's actually, it, it won a Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics for a guy named Danny Kahneman who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Fans of Danny Kahneman. <laughs> and, um, and, and he said that, and he and his partner Amos Tversky said that we're driven primarily by loss avoidance. Like you're more likely to take a risk to avoid a loss than you are to accomplish a gain, which is the opposite of most sales because sales is designed on pitching a gain. When in fact, why they really do it is because they want to avoid another loss. All right, so those are those components. The positive and the negative, everybody knows about that. The negative drives us much more than a positive. But then somewhere based behind it is this larger purpose thing that's really hard to get a handle on. It's different for everybody. Some people's religion is themselves. Some people, it's their job. Some people, it's the institution. Some people, it's... Um, it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion, but there's, everybody's got something they sacrificed their entire life for if they were in pursuit of it. So I need to listen to you long enough because you'll make references to that. And I'll get you talking by understanding the positives and the negatives, and I'll reflect and validate 
very intentionally different aspects of that when I hear it or what's implied by it. As soon as I pick up and feedback to you what you're implying, then you want to talk to me even more. Then that bond gets, of you want to talk to me, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then if I can pick up what your religion is, then all I have to do is retranslate what's going on so that it fits your religion, and then you'll change your mind about what you want to do. In your book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, take some of those principles and apply them to, let's say, we're trying to negotiate at work. Maybe we want a better salary or title. What are some of the key aspects of being a good negotiator at work? Okay, so first of all, there's not always money on the table, but there's always time. Time is a commodity that's in every negotiation. But then in a job negotiation... The more you focus on salary, the less successful you will be. The more you negotiate, focus on salary, the, the less successful you will be. focus on salary, the less successful you will be. Because salary only pays your bills. It doesn't build your career. And so if you're focusing on salary and not on how to be successful within the context of the job, then you are in deja vu every year. You're coming up for, there's been, there's been no uh, success criteria that's been clearly laid out. You don't know whether or not you've made it. You're hoping you do. You have got no commitments from, the, from, your, from your boss or from your employer specifically as to how you're going to get ahead. There's a, a friend of mine here in town. Um, he and I went to high school together. He may be the most, he's without question the most successful person I know personally. He's one of the most successful people I know at all or have heard of. We're both from the same small town in Iowa, which means we got he, he no family connections. He didn't he didn't he went to a Podunk University in Missouri, so he's got no alumni connections. He didn't get a graduate degree, so he's got uh, no academic credentials other than his four year degree from Podunk University. He's the head of the Development Bank of Singapore for the United States. He's based at, based here in town. He's the head of a bank for a country. Now, all of his job negotiations, he also recruits for less than what the industry pays, and um, people work for him longer than they work for anybody else. Because he's never focused on salary, the one thing that in every job negotiation he's ever been in, and every um, reevaluation of a manual evaluation, is he's determined, he says, how can I be guaranteed to be involved in projects that are critical to the strategic future of the company? Now, what that does, because most employees are seen by their bosses as being selfish. Here's the bad news. Your boss thinks you're selfish. Why does he think you're selfish? Because every time you want, walk into his office, you want something for yourself. Very few people walk into the, office, the boss's office and say, what can I do for you today, boss? <laughs> Unless it's going to make me look good. But as soon as Tom asks for how he can make the company better off, immediately people inside say, you want to make my life better. You want to improve this entire environment so that I make more money. I like you. Now, what happens then, just by bringing this up at all, his boss now sees him completely differently, sees him less self-centered. If he gets involved in critical strategic projects, he now also has visibility with the highest levels of the company. No matter how big the company is, the CEO is paying attention to what he's doing. And how do, you, how, do you, how do you get ahead in life? With relationships, people notice your work. How do you get noticed you worked on the most important projects? So he has launched himself through the stratosphere with that strategy for himself. He has the same strategy for the people who work for him. How does the game change 
when it's personal and you feel like the stakes are higher. Relationships, family, when you're trying to negotiate, you may not even realize you're trying to negotiate, but how did the, ch- the rules change when it's personal? We uh, were more worried about being heard than hearing. And, we're more um, worried about being hurt than heard. Heard, heard, heard than hearing. I, you know, I'm, I'm, which actually is, then the closer you are to somebody, then you know the more, the more they want to be heard. Which actually, and then it becomes slightly differently to the closer you are to somebody. Like in a business negotiation, if, if you were in a business negotiation and there was something that bothered you, <clears throat> excuse me, a good thing for me to say would be, you know, it looks like this has made you upset. But if we were colleagues and there's something that was bothering you and we interacted every day, it'd be smarter for me to say, I've made you upset. Now, I might not think that I did, but you're going to want me to step into that responsibility a lot more the closer we are. And if I didn't do anything to make you upset, you did it to yourself, or I think you did it to yourself, I'm going to be a lot less willing to say, I made you upset. I'm going to say, yeah, take responsibility for your own life. (laughs) or something like that. I want to throw out some words, and I want you to tell me the role they play in negotiation. Number one, empathy. Empathy, first of all, empathy is not sympathy. And so if you can understand that, empathy is immense power, Um, which is why uh, it's just, there was Adam Grant who's, uh, if you like reading business books, first of all, buy mine. (laughs) But like if Adam Grant wrote it, read it. He is brilliant. He's written originals. Give and take. He wrote, give and he take. He wrote uh, Option B with Sheryl Sandberg. He wrote, he wrote a book brilliant. with Sheryl Sandberg. So he's, he's brilliant. And he put a piece out, an article out there called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence, which is, and it, it's like ridiculously powerful. Empathy, if you understand how to use it, use your powers for good and not evil. And one of the things we talked about earlier, the people that are actually best at empathy and manipulating others are sociopaths. They don't use empathy because they're nice. They use it because it works. And it's insanely powerful. So if you can wrap your mind around empathy, you're probably a heck of a business negotiator. Number two, acknowledgement. That's part of empathy. Yeah, so acknowledgement is very strong. In every deal, there's something more important than an agreement for the other side. And uh, uh, there's one type that acknowledgement is the most important thing. And if you can figure that out, you can make deals without giving anything up, just by, giving, just by acknowledging where they're coming from. Three, patience. Patience is weapon. Patience is incredible. In, 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 this, in today's day and age of time pressure, if you're feeling time pressure and I'm patient, I got you. I'm just going to wear you out. Anger. Anger is a bad idea. <laughs> How do you really feel, Chris? <laughs> Anger is like a nuclear strike. The toxic residue is so damaging that it's probably not worth it. You can get great things done short term with anger, and the, the amount of toxic residue left as a result it's going to cost you money year after year after year. Anger is a bad idea. What was the most challenging 
negotiating situation that you've been in, whether it turned out the way you wanted to or not? Um, wow. Um, the most challenging is there was, this, there was a period of time in 2004 where we, we worked a series of kidnappings with Al-Qaeda where we were pretty sure that the, they were going to kill the hostages. Uh, very similar to what happened with ISIS um, about three years ago, 2014, through the summer of 2014. Guys currently running ISIS were actually lieutenants in Al-Qaeda in a 2004 time frame. The stuff that ISIS did in 2014 wasn't new. It was Al-Qaeda 3.0. Um, when, when we were working those cases, the key to a kidnapping is how you interact with the family and what you get the family to say in the media. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. You get family to say some really good things in the media and understand what the real, um, what the real commodity is, which is never terror with terrorists. It's never terror. Um, you can gain the upper hand. So we understood what they were doing uh, with, in Al-Qaeda with 2004. So getting a family member to cooperate when you're pretty sure their loved one's going to get killed is kind of hard. And what we found out, that, that, that's one of the reasons why I believe in, in honesty and business deals and in all interactions. Because I remember uh, one case, we were working in Saudi when this thing was getting started, and it looked like they were going to kill, kill the victim, and they did. But I sat down in the embassy with the victim's widow-to-be, and I needed her to go into the media, and she was being very well protected by her husband's boss. Very protective guy. They work for Rockwell Collins, military contractors. And he looked me in the eye and he said, are you going to get him out of this? If she cooperates with you, will that get him out? And I said, this probably isn't within our reach. And he said, I didn't think so. I just want to see if you tell me the truth. Which is one of the reasons why I don't believe in lying in negotiations. Because there's a pretty good chance the other side either already knows it's a lie or they're going to find out. So you've never lied in a negotiation? I don't lie, no. No, we don't, we, we don't lie. Um, and, and most of the time it's a trap. The other side knows you're lying. They want to see if you're going to lie to them. And if you go ahead and lie to them, now they, they know that um, you're, you're willing to lie to them and cheat them. That's bad for a long-term relationship. So lying, is, lying, is a, lying like anger, both those things are really bad ideas. Was there a time when you lost, when they, when they you know, you mentioned that they, they killed the, the kidnapping victims and, and you thought to yourself, if I had done just something different, it might have worked out differently? Almost. Um, second major kidnapping, I worked in the Philippines, uh, Burnham Sabero kidnapping, talk about it in the book. Um, we thought we were going to get the hostages out, they didn't let them out. They, uh, the bad guys ripped us off. They kept the money. It's actually exactly parallel. If there's any people in sales here that knows what being single-threaded is, uh, if you've heard that term, that's what happened to us in this kidnapping. I thought, and then they didn't come out. They didn't, the bad guys didn't kill them. But then about a month and a half later, two out of three of our remaining hostages were killed in a botched rescue attempt. They were shot by friendly fire. And um, at that time, it wasn't that I felt that we did things wrong. It was that because I knew we did everything by the numbers. We always worked in a team. I never did anything without bouncing it off of us smart people. So what I thought at that point in time was, if we did everything we could do and it wasn't enough, we have to get better. And that was actually when I ended up at Harvard shortly thereafter. 
because I said, I, we got everything we know within law enforcement, and it's not enough. So we have to go outside, and we've got to get better. What did you learn that made you better? We actually brought much more empathy back into really hard bargaining situations, mm -hmm. just tough, hard-nosed situations. Went back and recognized just how powerful empathy is with the most dangerous of adversaries. And then we also looked at a couple of other strategies that gave us the ability to influence, to get out of a single-threaded situation and influence the real decision-makers who are never at the table. How do you handle stress? I drink excessively. <laughs> and humor, huh? And I, and I go to Ivy Connect. And, you know, <laughs> I tell bad jokes. Is it hard for you? Um, different kinds of stress. Everybody's, you know, everybody's got, everybody got stuff they get bent out of shape about. I get bent out of shape over my phone bill. <laughs> bent out of shape over your phone bill. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, everybody, everybody's got different stuff that stresses them out. I mean, I, I kind of look at it as, you know, this is something that works for me. You know, negotiation, but, um, you know, other stuff I, I, I get worried about. So this, this just happens. I look at an emergency room doctor. I mean, I, I'm, I don't like needles. I'm scared of blood. I mean, I could never do that. <laughs> you know, but there's some people that are really good at it. That's, that's their thing. You know, they're good at that. I, you know, I, I, when I, somebody sticks a needle in my arm in a doctor's office, they always, they're worried about me falling on a floor. So, uh, you know, but you have no problem being on the line with a terrorist who's about to kill somebody else. I know, I know the process. Yeah, I learned the process. I worked at it really hard. I, I, I worked at it really hard. And you don't have to be, you don't, it doesn't take any, you, everybody here has got the ability to have ridiculous emotional intelligence. And incredible, I mean, just insane emotional intelligence. Because EQ is not like IQ. Your IQ is limited. It's like your height. No matter how many times you play, no matter how much chess you play, your IQ is not changing. Emotional intelligence, on the other hand, is a nearly unlimited capacity that we all have if we just work at it. And then as soon as you start working at it, initially the going is very slow, but then it starts to come really fast. What's the first thing that we can do to improve our emotional quotient, our EQ? Um, you know, practice acknowledgement. Like what you talked about before, if, if you just take the time to just give a little acknowledgement out, how much time does it take in a conversation? 15 seconds to just acknowledge what somebody's saying. You're so right, Chris. You're so smart. <laughs> I can't help but be impressed with how insightful she is. That's good. That's good to know. That's good to know. All right, we're going to walk through a situation. But you know what? And, and let me go back to that real because this is, this is one that I love, to, I love to throw out a lot. Um, because, you know, she flattered me, right? So is flattery empathy? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you guys have an answer to that too? <laughs> that was, that's the immediate reaction though. All right, so the definition of empathy is how does the other person see it? So it does, and that, that's a hard part for some people. So what you're trying to say is it's not about the intention, it's about the way that it's received? So it's, it's, yeah, it's how it's received. And it also the other thing about empathy is there's nothing in it that, that, that says it's the truth. Now, in my view, one of the reasons why you want to respond immediately that flattery is not empathy is because you hate flatterers. You hate sycophants. It doesn't feel authentic. When you're seeing it being done to somebody else. 
We, we, had, we had a guy that got into my unit in the FBI, a sycophant to the max. And he sycophanted his way in. He circumvented the situation, and we had a very hard-nosed guy in command, and we were stunned that he let him in. So they gave this guy to me because I was known as being uh, tough and fair. And so they knew that if, if, they, if, if, I, if he got past me to get in, that he made the grade that I would, be, I would be very hard on him, but I would be very fair with him. So I know this guy's a sycophant. They, they send him with me to watch me instruct. I know he's a sycophant. And we get done with the instruction, and I said, I said all right, you know, what'd you think? And he said, oh, man, you're a great instructor. And I went, yeah. <laughs> but then I went, wait, 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 wait. Why? And he couldn't answer me. But I knew he was a sycophant. And when it's, when it's at you, you fall for it anyway. We hate it because we see other people do it to get ahead. And we wouldn't care if they didn't use it to get ahead. Otherwise, you could care less about sycophants because you'd say, yeah, they can knock themselves out all they want. It doesn't do them any good. It does people a lot of good. That's just why we hate it because the people that we compete with who are less talented are getting stuff that they didn't work for with it. So it's, a, it's interesting to think about. All right, we're going to get our microphones here, if we can get our team to get the microphones, because I want you guys to give your input on this. I want you to give us a situation in which I'm going to call on a couple of people in the audience to quickly, in about 10, 15 seconds, give us your thoughts on how you would handle this actual situation, and then we'll find out how you really did handle it. So go ahead, and as, as we're getting the microphones, set up a situation, and I'm going to call on five of you to give me about 10 seconds of what you would do in this situation. So set us up. Okay, you are the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. And very handsome. And you're in Washington, D.C. And you get a call that a 12-year-old boy has been kidnapped in Haiti in a carjacking. Now, this is a standard business model for kidnappings in Haiti. And it's a really good business model. And understand, if the other side, it's a business. And the business model is you carjack a car, bad guys carjack a car with more than one person in it, you get a car and a person. And you let somebody go to let people know that there's been a kidnapping. You don't have to worry about notifying anybody because you've just notified somebody that knew that person well enough to be in the same car with them. So you got a victim, you got immediate notification, and you got a car. Now, if they were in a car, they'd probably have some money. And in worst case, they got at least money, they got money for gas. And worst case scenario, you still got a car. So this is a no-lose proposition. All right, so 12-year-old boy's been grabbed, dual national, Haitian citizen, Haitian ethnicity, bad guys don't know they got an American. They think they just got a 12-year-old kid, Haitian boy. And um, it's your job to handle this. Now, this is going to go fast. It's gonna, and red tape is incredible. I, I know Tom Cruise ends up in Singapore in six hours. <laughs> But you, you ain't going to jump on a plane and get down there. You have to make contact with the people right away and get control of this dynamic by phone right away. 
before this gets out of control. So you have got the father's phone number. You've been notified from the State Department. They've told you the father's name. <clears throat> father's been told that the FBI's going to help him. And you call him on the phone to help him. And he says to you, you're in Washington, D.C. How are you going to help me? Now, how much time have you got before he hangs up and what do you say? So the key here is what are you saying to this 12-year-old dad? Right. He has just challenged you on the phone. All right. Let's see where the microphones are. We got it right there? All right. Put your hand up. All right. Right there in the back. You're the first one. Go. We got one? Oh, you're just holding the microphone? All right. Someone? Who's first? Someone's got to go. Come on. Be the first person. Tell me what you think. All right. Right here. Thank you. Jimmy, I appreciate you. You're smart. I love you. Go. All right. So I would tell the father that you weren't in that car either. And, uh, you know, you weren't there for him when he needed you. I... No, no, wait, wait. This is a no judgment zone. No, no, no. We are letting no, no, and I, I would let him know that as much as you wish you would have been, now you have me with you and we can get this done. Okay. All right. Thank you for sharing your thought. Jimmy, go next. Sure. Um, I think I would start by trying to establish credibility. So I would say, I understand you're upset. This is a difficult situation, but we've negotiated dozens and dozens of these cases and we're the most qualified right now to help you all right thank you all right right here and back yes actually similar to that i would say my location doesn't matter my skill set knowledge and expertise and proven track record of bringing these to a successful close and then i would convince him to pay the money because he already said that in this situation it's a business model and if they kill their hostages and have a reputation for not fulfilling their end of the bargain they're not going to get paid out all right, thank you. Do we have one more? Right here. Yes, we're going to go with this female right here in front. I'd like to hear a female perspective. I would focus on what the father wants most, to say, you know, we don't have a lot of time. I have the same incentives to help your boy as, as, as you do. Let's just work together and figure this out. Thank you. One more? Way in the back right there. And then we'll get your take, Chris. Um, I would ask a couple questions. I would start off with something like, uh, do you not want me to help me? And uh, Read my book. <laughs> I did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would ask something like, um, um, I, I don't know what it is. Depends on the response, I guess. But that, that would be my opening question. All right. Thank you so much. We've gotten, what, four or five great different perspectives on this. What are your thoughts, Chris, and how did you handle it? Well, a lot, a lot of the answers in, in different ways are, are kind of similar to how the first time I ever had to sort of do this, um, and I did it wrong. First time I showed up in the Philippines, uh, met with basically uh, the president's cabinet, everybody but the president, the president's personal advisor, and all the cabinet, and they were like, all right, so who are you and what are you doing here? And I, and I tried to explain my resume, explain the strategy and tactics, you know, any, any of the logic. Um, and none of it mattered. 
and they pretty much yawned in my face. We actually ended up sort of a contentious discussion. And I remember when we walked out uh, later on, and we, we ended up establishing a collaboration, but the guy that was running the bureau office in, in Manila, uh, when we got out, he says, that was really insulting. They questioned your credentials and you know your abilities and uh, your resume. That was really insulting. And I said, that was really cool. When was the last time you got to argue with the Secretary of Defense of an entire country? <laughs> but that was the wrong way to do it. So I, uh, I, I'd done it wrong once before. What I said to this father, first of all, when he was told that the FBI was going to help him, I'm not entirely sure what went through his mind, what that meant, but I could imagine it was something to the effect of about within about 10 or 15 minutes, he was going to hear on the front door and open the door and there'd be Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in black outfits. <laughs> and probably helicopters and people repelling out of helicopters. You know? But instead, 15 minutes later, instead of the knock at the door, he's got this guy named Chris Wallace from Washington, D.C. And I probably have less than three seconds before he hangs up the phone. So I say to him instead, I say, all right, here's the deal. Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnap victims. Now, I realize that's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnap victims. Now, today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love to party on Saturday night. So if you follow my guidance, we'll have your son out by late Friday, early Saturday morning. And he said, tell me what you want me to do. Now, and we had his son out Saturday morning. Throughout the entire course of that kidnapping, he never asked me how long I'd been an FBI agent, how long I'd been a hostage negotiator. He never asked me how many kidnappings I worked. He never asked me how many times I've been to Haiti. He never asked me if I, by the way, I've never been to Haiti. He never asked me if I, how many languages I spoke. He never asked me if I spoke French, Creole, Haitian, anything. And all of you by now, if... As, as the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, I coach negotiations literally all over the planet. You might ask yourself, there's a lot of countries, there's a lot of languages, how many languages does Chris Voss speak? And you've come to realize that the answer to that is almost one. <laughs> but he never asked me any of those questions. And people that you interact with are going to react the same way. Your resume correlates loosely with whether or not you know what to do. And as soon as you show someone that you have a good view of the landscape, they don't ask you. You don't need to tell them you're the right guy, for, guy or gal for the job. You don't need to tell them that you're on their side, that you have the same incentives. You don't have to do any of the explaining, any of the logic, no matter how logical it is. As soon as you show somebody you understand the challenges, in their mind, their desire to cooperate with you, almost you get responses like, tell me what you want me to do. Or tell me more. You understand. If you understand what I'm faced with, the chances that you understand what I need to do are really, really high. And that's, and that's, that's in all, all negotiations that I'm in now. Any, anytime anybody challenges, give us your sales pitch. You know, what, what good are you? I say, here's what you're up against. So the fact that you knew that they liked to go out on Saturday night was enough credibility in his mind that he thought you knew what you were doing. It was an insight um, that it's a, it's a human nature. Yeah, the short answer is yes, because it's a human nature insight. And everybody has, everybody 
has a similar motivational button on them someplace, depending, no matter what industry they're in, industry, whatever they do. I mean, anybody try to get anything done uh, on Wall Street in, in August <laughs> or December? In August, they're all in the Hamptons. In December, they're splitting up their, their bonuses. Not happening. Um, everybody has got dynamics. Um, try to get something done in Los Angeles, Night of the Academy Awards. Well, what was the key thing that you asked that father to do that helped get his son released? Well, then uh, some, somebody mentioned the money. It's a money dynamic. I understand from the other side's point of view, there are two issues to every deal. And the most important issue is always time. The other side has got an, a vision for how long this is going to take. And they've got different time pressures on them at different points that those time pressures are going to crank up on them. So if I know how long they expect it to take, that's why patience is a weapon. No matter what you're doing for a living, you want to close a deal within some time frame. And you're not going to close it before that because you're always going to feel like you could get more. You know when you need to have that deal closed. I just need to figure out when that is with you. And they're, and they're going to be a bunch of different things. Like some people at the end of the week, end of the month, end of the quarter, depending upon what their business deal is. There were some stat, statistics about Salesforce that they're actually the salespeople for Salesforce closed 80% of their deals in the last week of every quarter at substantial discounts because they're willing to take their time up to the last part of the quarter. When you want to buy a car, towards the end of the month, on a Friday, because that's when people have time pressures on them. So all you have to do is understand the other person's time pressures and time frames, and then approach it with patience. So did you tell him how much money to give? Did you coach him through all that? We also have a bargaining system that beats offer, counter offer every single time. Um, and so I know how we can how we can punch their buttons emotionally and make them feel like that they got every last dollar out of out of us. Uh, kidnap uh, a phrase in a kidnapping business is when's the hostage coming out? When the kidnappers believe they've gotten everything they can. When they believe they've gotten everything they can. So we put a system of offers and counter offers with specifically designed incremental changes, and we plug in a massive amount of empathy in between each one, and we give the other side the illusion of control. Secret of gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control, and especially with control-oriented negotiators. Somebody's really fights you for control, boy, they are vulnerable to uh, the illusion of control. Have you ever come across a person who that just didn't work with, that formulaic approach just didn't work? It's not that it doesn't work. It's whether or not I want to make the deal with them. Um, and so we will get in, engaged in a negotiation, and I'll smell pretty early on whether or not they're really trying to beat us bad in the negotiation. And then we'll assess whether or not we still want to do the deal and what other intangibles there are on the table or how long it'll take us to do the deal. Like if, um, if, if it's going to take too long, we just move on because there's more profitable stuff. So part of it is an assessment process of um, however they're dealing with us now is how they're always going to deal with us. 
They're not saving this behavior just for us. If they're difficult, they'll always be difficult. What's that saying? The way you do one thing is the way you do everything? Right. Right. So um, if they're difficult now, then you know, may- maybe, maybe it's still worth it to do the deal. We did one. We're doing one now with um, an airline. Um, who, and, and we've been training their people, and they were, then they brought us in for more training. They wanted to do us on us. But we got some, and through the course of the conversation, we found some more intangibles that I didn't even know was there. So I'm like, all right. They threw something out by accident. I was like, ooh, I like that. And we'll do that deal. And they will always be difficult to deal with because they want to prove to us that they're tough negotiators. But that's okay because there's other stuff that we continue to discover that make it worthwhile. Another very famous negotiator, Herb Cohen, said, care, but not that much. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's another way of sort of uh, using empathy. I mean, Herb Cohen, um, first negotiation book I ever read. <laughs> and a, a, lot of, a lot of really good stuff. A lot of what he talked about still stands the test of time today. His definition of negotiation is real close to the, de- the way we define it. And he's quoted in hostage negotiation books. So he's, he's got a lot of human nature insights. So yeah, you, you care but not that much is establish empathy, establish but don't be vulnerable to it. You know, there's a difference between being likable and needing to be liked. Your people are six times more likely to make a deal with somebody they like. But if you need to be liked, you can be intensely manipulative, manipulated. So I know the difference between, yeah, I want to treat you really well. I'm not going to try to anger you, but if I'm afraid of angering you, then you could take me hostage. You can have a significant advantage. So that's, Cohen is trying to get people to establish a human connection but not make yourself vulnerable to it. What keeps you up at night, Chris? <laughs> I know you're thinking of something really I clever and funny to good. say. Yeah, you know, I was going to make a clever remark and say, you know, is it Sopranos or Game of Thrones or something <laughs> like that. But no, I, um, I've actually focused a lot more uh, on just a good night's sleep being a necessary part of the recharge so I can stay sharp. So, you know, there's a lot of things you could do to make you sleep, make sure that you sleep well, because I want to get up in the morning and rock and roll. So I, I've learned um, better ways to not be kept up at night. So I try to sleep well. And can you, can you separate these intense experiences with, with people like terrorists and, and sociopaths? Can you keep that separate or does that ever affect you and who you are? I always try to learn from it. If, you, if, if I'm trying to learn from it, um, then, then it does actually, it doesn't get to you personally when you're focused on learning and getting better. So, and I think that's, that's a great way to protect yourself if you're always, 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 always trying to get better. So if, if I'm learning from it, then I take it as, you know, when, when those people get killed in the Philippines... We saved a bunch of other lives as a result. We got better. We made differences in other cases that we never would have made if that hadn't happened. So I always view um, uh, that as part of a necessary part of the process for the greater good on down the line. So how do you look their parents in the eyes when you, when you lose? The, uh, um, 
it's not just their parents, it was their whole families. And we always plugged into their whole families. And, and the biggest thing was, when I get back to lying, we never lied to anybody about anything. And um, we knew that uh, what they were getting ready to go through was just going to be like getting run over by a train. And really, the really hard part, every one of the cases we worked was, as soon as the kidnapping was over, we had to unplug from the families. And they had gotten used to us being there for them nearly every moment of the day for anywhere from a week to two years. Mm. And so then we disappear as part of, the, of a necessary process when they have to go move on and then it becomes prosecution for a homicide or not. Um, it's, that's the hard part, unplugging from a family and that you've been there for for a year and a half, two years. Have you ever cried? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Because it didn't go well? What? Because it didn't go well or because it was such an emotional release? I don't know. Uh... This is your safe zone. It's just the two of us and it's, a few other people. You, you, you won't tell anybody, right? I won't. It's just us. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, uh, when, when in, the, in the case in the Philippines where people got killed, that was tough. I don't think I broke down that day because um, I had to turn around. I had to notify most of the U.S. government. That was hard. Um, some, some of it is, I mean, in reality, is... is, is when Martin Burnham got killed in the Philippines, and that, that was unexpected, that was probably my lowest professional moment. But then, like, it wasn't a member of my family that got killed. I mean, I, I, I got no, I got no, I had no justification to get weepy because it wasn't a member of my family. So I suppose it's okay for me to feel bad over it, but, you know, his, his, his kids, you know, his parents, they're the ones that uh, are entitled to cry. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.